All right, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we will put the uh, text up on our screen behind me in just a little bit. If you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen uh, when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have one that you can call your own, not only are there hundreds of free options available online, we, we like all those, uh, but we also have this real special affinity for physical Bibles. God, I think, just kind of uses them in a special way. Um, we're not hardline about that. It's just over and over again, he seems to prove himself good like that when you've got his word sitting in your lap. And, and so if you don't have a, a copy of God's word of your very own, one that you can call yours, um, we, we like giving them away around here. We can fix that. Uh, and so uh, come talk to me after we're done or, or get a hold of me online, whatever it is, and we can put a Bible in your hands. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. But the, the chief reason that he's given us his word, the, of the, all the important reasons, is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and around and about your life to be defined by Him, uh, ruled by Him, influenced by Him, uh, all those things. And, and so uh, we, we want to put Bibles in people's hands and call them to read them and come up with creative ways to be reading them and all those kind of things. Uh, so get a hold of me if you don't have one. Um, so we are in week 14 now, believe it or not, uh, of an effort that we've been walking through uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians together. We started this uh, several months ago. Uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to uh, a very young church in the Greek city of Corinth. And, and it's a letter that's, that's birthed out of, a, uh, out of an incredibly deep desire in Paul's heart to see this church that he's connected with uh, walk in maturity, walk in spiritual depth, all those kinds of things. The, the church there seemed to have kind of have a special place in Paul's heart. Um, and we say that because and he, he kind of just seems to put up with them longer and the nonsense that comes out of them longer than he does with other folks. All right, um, he, Not only uh, has he made several trips, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, in the book of Acts and, and in his letters, uh, not only does he make several trips back and forth to Corinth, but he also writes several letters back and forth to them. He seems to have an incredibly long fuse with the Corinthian church. Um, and so he's definitely patient with them beyond what they deserve. Um, and so uh, instead of kind of uh, throwing his hands up and, and writing them off and walking away, instead he presses in, he engages. And the manner in which he engages is kind of what has shaped our efforts as we've walked through this letter. It's what birthed our, our, our series theme, Upside Down, our Beautifully Upside Down. Uh, and so uh, Paul is going to continually come back to and bring their attention back to the reality that God's kingdom doesn't look anything at all, and I mean at all, like the kingdoms of this world. In fact, it's pretty much upside down in every way. Every possible way, every conceivable way. It values and pursues different things. It celebrates and exalts different things. It feels foreign and, and honestly even contemptible uh, to those who uh, are, you know, haven't been turned right side up yet. God's kingdom is, I think, better, but at the very least, is different. It's very different. It's upside down. It's backwards. It's inside out. But as we've discovered over and over and over again throughout this series, as we've walked this pathway, it's precisely in that upside down nature that God proves himself to be truly glorious. Truly glorious. And the clearest example of that otherworldly glory is the cross of Christ, right? We've talked about this at length, but we can't. <laughs> is there ever a level that we can't talk about it enough, right? Like, like, think about how crazy the idea of the cross of Jesus is. A naked Savior beaten and suffocating as he's nailed to a wooden stake. Not exactly something you, you write home to mom about and say, I found something impressive today. It's not exactly this, this thing that we put up on the, the highest shelf and, and, and celebrate as one of the most beautiful things in our world. It doesn't get the acclaim. It doesn't get the honors. It, it's not really going to get the press junket either. In chapter 1, Paul calls the, the cross a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Why, why does he call it that? Well, because it's impossible to, to, to kind of saddle up next to the Savior and remind him that you did your piece too. Right? Elbow Jesus while it's hanging there. I'm so glad you did your part. Don't worry, I, t I took care of my end. How ridiculous would that be? 
No man gets to boast at all in the price, in the peace that they have added to their salvation because you can't really add anything to what he's done. It doesn't matter how impressive you think your religious action is. It is wholly incapable of adding anything of substance to what he's already done. He's got it, and he didn't need your help. No man gets to boast, but, but self-righteousness isn't the only thing that the cross of Christ strips away. It's not just a stumbling block, it's also a folly we've learned, and that's more the Corinthians problem. It, it's, it's just as impossible to saddle up next to this cross and try to use Jesus as some kind of leverage to gain something that you think is more valuable. He just strips that away from you. You either love Jesus for exactly who he is and exactly what he has done, or he's actually a massive inconvenience for you. You don't get to use Jesus as a pawn to to purchase something else. He will not allow that. There's a cross-shaped shadow hovering over every other good thing that you think you ought to chase. If you want to use Jesus as some kind of pawn, you've got to get rid of the cross. And once you get rid of the cross, we're not really talking about Jesus anymore, are we? He won't allow that. And so because of these twin realities, stumbling block and folly, we we can only ever gain access into Jesus' good kingdom, his upside-down kingdom, through hearts that have been changed deep down at a core level to love what he loves and chase after what he calls us to chase after. That's the pathway in. That's the door that we enter in through. Some might call it narrow. So did Jesus. And so whenever we find ourselves in the middle of this, these two kingdoms in dissonance, whenever we find ourselves uh, in, in these moments where the upside-downness of Jesus' kingdom feels like it's just a little bit too big of a bite to chew, have you ever, you ever been reading the Bible and you're like, I don't know if I can trust that. I don't know if I can really buy into that. that that's going to cost me some things, right? And so whenever we find ourselves in these moments where we're like, I'm not sure if I want to believe this is true, the question that we've been training ourselves to ask, disciplining ourselves to ask is, okay, 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 but is it, is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it, is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And the answers to those questions are yes. Well, then we can push through the dissonance and we can push through the foreign, uh, that momentary uh, brief instance of crazy and I'm not sure I can buy into this. We can push through that into something that might just have eternal beauty to it and be infinitely better than we can imagine. So you ready to dig into our next piece? Chapter 8. Let's look at verse 1. Paul says this. Now concerning food offered to idols. All right, we're going to go ahead and call a time out there. I know we didn't get all the way through a sentence yet. All right. Sorry. Welcome to Nashville Baptist. All right. So we got another topic on our hands, right, that, that, that is a direct answer to something that the Corinthians seem to have asked Paul, right? Uh, and so we've discussed this before at length, uh, but this is not the first instance, this is not the first word in this longer dialogue, this longer conversation. Uh, we know that the Corinthians had sent him a letter and Paul had sent them a letter. And so uh, a couple of times now, we've already seen Paul directly addressing what they had written them, all right? And so uh, that's the same thing here. It was what we saw at the very beginning of chapter 7. It's the same thing at the beginning of chapter 8. And so if it helps you though, I can go ahead and tip our cards. We can cheat a little bit this morning. Uh, we have consistently seen, consistently seen that it doesn't actually matter what the topic is. Because the Corinthians were guilty of a deep-seated pride that always seemed to take that one thing and twist that one thing, and manipulate that one thing, and use that one thing, no matter how good it is, no matter what we're talking about. They always found a way to turn that thing upside down and use it for themselves, to exalt themselves and make a name for themselves, rather than God had, how God had designed that thing to be used. This weekend, any different. Same problem, just a different flavor. But we do get to change our point of failure, though, so that's fun. Paul's going to shift now to addressing a practice that I'm guessing, just, just spitballing here, I'm guessing that most of us in this room have never really dealt with. Eating meat that had been previously offered to a pagan idol. All right, show of hands. How many have done that? Going to have to put it on our bucket list? Okay. Um, 
Okay, so assuming you've never thought through how the system would work, let me try to explain to you. In, in the ancient world, there were literally hundreds of options for gods that you could choose to worship. And there were, there were layers to that, whether it was the city you were living in or the family you came out of. All right, and so there were things that bore weight on that. Uh, but there were hundreds and hundreds of gods that you could choose to, to worship. And, and in a cosmopolitan place like Corinth, you had all the options. And it's like moving to the big city and finally having all the fast food stores like available to you, right? Have you ever grown, gone from a small town to a, a big city and you're like, look at all the places I can go. Look at all the options I've got. That's kind of what's going on in Corinth. It was a very pluralistic place. They had all the options available, all right? And so there were different ways that you could show your adoration, you could show your worship and devotion to these pagan gods. We, we talked about the temple of Aphrodite uh, several weeks ago and, and the temple prostitutes, right? And so that was one of the ways. But really the main way you worshiped one of these gods, no matter which god you were talking about, was some kind of, uh, some kind of live animal slaughtered and left on the altar, Right? That's really kind of how that rolled out. There was a, a meat sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. And so it would have been incredibly common in this city, in the ancient Greek world altogether, it would have been incredibly common to walk through town, past temple and past temple and past temple, past idol and idol and idol, and just see stacks of meat sitting on the ground. It was just all over the place. In fact, it was big business. It was everywhere. Sometimes the meat was raw, sometimes the meat was cooked, but there were piles of it all over the place. If you wanted to show your devotion to these gods, that's what you had to do. So, here's a real world practical question for you. What do you think happened to all that meat? Because either A, the inanimate statue ate it, or B, somebody had to come around eventually and pick up that meat. Anybody brave enough to go with option A? Not going to go well. <laughs> capitalists are going to do what capitalists are always going to do. They figured out a way to resell that meat, right? They, commentators disagree on how exactly the practice was viewed in the ancient world. There, there's some debate about it. Some argue that, that because this meat was kind of secondhand, it was cheaper uh, than, than all the other stuff available. And so there was this market for secondhand meat that was kind of on sale, I guess. And then there are others who have a really, really strong argument, and I think maybe it's this one, but who knows. Right, the, the other side of the argument is that, uh, that you, don't, you don't bring the bad animals to the sacrifice. You bring the best animals to your sacrifice, right? And so the, people figured out eventually that this meat that was just being left around, uh, well, well, that was the good stuff. And so actually it was seen as this celebrated and, and kind of higher tier version of meat. And so Paul tells us here, in, 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 we're not really sure how it played out, but there was a market for this secondhand meat. Paul tells us here in verse 1 that some of the Christians in Corinth, uh, in the church there, they're, they're buying and eating this meat. Now, before we dig into how Paul is going to address it, what's your gut level reaction to that? Do you see that as some kind of normal, pragmatic thing to do, or does it sound grotesque and maybe even sacrilegious to you? Don't answer. Sit on it for a second. We're going to come back to that answer in a second. But, like, what's your knee jerk? Is that, is that an incredibly wise thing to do, or is that a very terrible thing to do? I don't know if there's a middle ground there, right? Verse 1. Let's read it again. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Notice the quotation marks there. Uh, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Verse 2, If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, so the quotation marks there are important. They're not original to the text. They're not actually in the Greek. But, but most modern translators place those quotation marks there because we're pretty confident that Paul is quoting back something that the Corinthians had said to, them, said to him in, in their letter. Uh, he's quoting back to them from the letter that, that they had written to him. So regardless of however you view this eating of leftover idol meat, the pagan idol meat, uh, many of the Corinthian Christians believed that it was perfectly okay. They believed it was perfectly okay. And they defended that belief through what they called a possession of knowledge. A possession of knowledge. In other words, 
we're allowed to eat this meat because we're all mature here and we know what's up. We know what it really is. There, there might be others who struggle with this idea, but we don't struggle with this idea because we really know. That's the excuse that they gave him. And what's Paul's response to that? He does not say, if you're keeping score here, he does not say that their knowledge is incorrect. He does not fly out of the gate letting them know just how crazy of an idea that is. How dare you? That's not knowledge at all. He says, great, awesome, you got knowledge. You possess a higher knowledge. Congratulations. Way to go, Corinth. Way more mature than everybody else, but knowledge alone isn't enough. Knowledge alone isn't enough. If, you've got, if, you've all, if all you've got is this knowledge, you're in a lot of trouble because knowledge all by itself, it, it just produces pride. It produces pride. It creates arrogance in you and it puffs you up, he says. You're not, you're not special because you happen to know something. What ultimately matters at the end of the day, what ultimately matters is that you are known by God. That's the most special kind of knowledge. And that knowledge, man, it belongs to all who love God. So hear me clearly. Paul, Paul does not tell them that they aren't knowledgeable. He tells them that their knowledge is not the thing by which they should be judging their maturity. It's not the thing by which they should be judging their maturity. So, so does that mean that it's okay to, to eat leftover idol meat then? Well, let's keep reading verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the Corinthians' argument for their allowance to eat this leftover meat is that regardless of whatever those around them are, are using it for, whatever they're, those making the sacrifices happen to believe about those statues, they know better. That's their point. They, like these other people, they may be making devoted sacrifices to these statues, but we know what those statues really are. Those statues are nothing more than a hunk of rock or metal. They're lifeless, and they will always be lifeless. It doesn't matter how fervent that pagan worship happens to be. Their sacrifices are always falling on dead ears. They are powerless to even receive that sacrifice from them, let alone enjoy it. And Paul here agrees with the Corinthians. He agrees with them. Notice the scare quotes around gods and lords in verse 5. He's mocking the idea. Those statues might have some people who call them gods, but they aren't gods. Doesn't matter what they call them, they're not gods. It's ridiculous that anybody would think otherwise. And no amount of pretending is ever going to change that. Not a lick. They might have some devoted followers who call them Lord, but Lord of what, right? Like, like, what could something, anything that has ever been crafted by the hands of a man ever be Lord of? You kidding me right now? There's only one Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and for whom we exist. So eating meat that has been previously offered to some lifeless statue, like it, it might be unwise because of the obvious lack of proper refrigeration. But it has no intrinsic spiritual value. It has no intrinsic spiritual value. That meat is just meat. It hasn't become something else because of how it was previously used. It's meat. But if you notice, I use the word intrinsic. And I use that word on purpose. Because by itself, the meat is perfectly fine. And if your first thought when you heard that that's what the Corinthians were doing was, oh, 
What a wise use and good stewardship of some meat that had been wasted on some dumb statue. If that was your first thought, then the meat is probably perfectly okay for you to eat. But that wasn't everybody's thought, was it? Some of you didn't think that at all. For some of you, your immediate thought was to connect it to something deeper and spiritual, wasn't it? And so in verse 7, Paul says this. However, not all possess this knowledge. Let's call time out there. So, so several times now throughout uh, the course of this letter, we have watched Paul introduce a, a depth into the situation, a nuance into the situation that the Corinthians weren't paying attention to at all. It wasn't even on their radar. They were walking ankle deep when they should be walking above their, their head. And so some of the folks in Corinth are absolutely certain of their viewpoint. And Paul goes, hey, listen, listen, it's, it's great that you think that you have all this stuff figured out, but, but here's something you haven't considered yet. Here's something you haven't actually spent enough time thinking through. Paul doesn't disagree with their reasoning for being able to eat the idol meat. He introduces a, a new wrinkle uh, that they apparently hadn't bothered to think through. He says, not everybody knows what you know. Not everybody knows what you know. Just because you've wrapped your head around some deeper spiritual truth, that doesn't for any one moment mean that everybody else in the room has. And because knowledge has the ability to puff us up, Man, we need to be very, very careful with how we handle that knowledge. Just like the Corinthians did with everything else. Even deep spiritual knowledge can be twisted into something that we use to try and exalt ourselves. In fact, it happens all the time. All the time. But don't the immature need my knowledge? Right? You ever been sitting in a Bible study and somebody just likes to talk? Don't the immature just need my knowledge? I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. I, I, maybe. Maybe they need your knowledge, but, but also sometimes definitely not. Right? I've got a five-year-old little boy. I carry a massive responsibility of, of trying to help him grow up as he makes sure he learns some things about the world and about himself and about God and about life and how the world works. Massive responsibility. There, there, are things, <laughs> there are things about this world that my five-year-old needs to know right now today. And shame on me if I'm not telling him. But then there are also a lot of other things that my five-year-old doesn't need to know about the world just yet. Right? And shame on me if I tell him. Not, they're not on his radar, and they don't need to be on his radar. And if I dump all those things on him simply because I have wisdom to share, I have insight that he just needs to hush and listen, not only do I prove my arrogance by my actions, but I also do great damage to him, don't I? Great damage. See, the most valuable question that the spiritually mature can ask is not... What do I have to share with those less mature than me? That's not the question. The, the most valuable question is, what do, immature, what do the immature actually need at the moment, and how can I help them? And I know that those two questions sound really similar, but they're actually worlds apart. They're worlds apart. Because, because the second one places the emphasis on the one who actually needs to grow rather than the one who needs to speak. Takes the focus off of ourselves and puts it on the one who God would have us disciple. What do the immature actually need at the moment and how can I help them? Paul, Paul tells them it's great that you have this knowledge, but not everybody knows what you know. Not everybody knows what you know. Others see that statue and, and, and they haven't resolved yet that that's nothing more than a lifeless hunk of stone or, or metal. And, and so they see that meat as something that carries a spiritual reality beyond just some meat. Well, they just need my knowledge. Do they? Are you sure about that? The who are you really trying to serve question, it's a massive question in the mature Christian's heart. 
It'll flesh out a lot of answers for you. The who are you trying to serve question is going to directly influence the nuance of a lot of actions in your heart and life. But Paul keeps going because immaturity is not the only angle to this. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. All right, so I, I'm not sure if you're really aware of this or not, not really sure if you, you ever kind of sat down and, and thought about this, but when Jesus saves folks, they come with baggage. Like, you ever notice that? People got problems, sometimes really deep ones. They got a history, and that history colors all kinds of things as they grow up in Christ, man. And sometimes it's really, really messy. Like, really messy. And some he saves out of this situation, and, and some he saves out of that situation. And apparently there's a whole bunch of folks in Corinth who have been saved out of the rampant pagan idolatry situation. Heading off to the temple daily or weekly, slaughtering that calf and dropping it at the feet of some lifeless statue. We've mentioned a couple of times now, but this church isn't that old. Our, our absolute earliest guess for this church being started is 48 AD. All right, our absolute latest guess for the writing of this letter is 55 AD. So at a maximum, if you lean towards the extremes of both of those windows, we're talking about a church that's seven years old. More likely, it's somewhere around five, five and a half years old. Probably hadn't thought this through either, but all the Christians that make up the church in Corinth weren't saved on day one either. They've slowly come along as the church has grown and more people have come to know the Lord. And so it's highly likely that at the time that this letter is being received, that there are people in this church body who had been saved out of rampant pagan idolatry less than a year ago. Some maybe even a lot more than that. Maybe they were doing it last week. And Paul says, listen, they can't simply disconnect their past experiences from what they're seeing doesn't happen that quickly for them. Yes, it was sinful. Yes, it was highly illogical. But by God's grace, they had been rescued out of that and redeemed out of that. But those sights, man, those are familiar sights. And those smells are familiar smells. And those tastes are familiar tastes. And familiarity is an incredibly dangerous ground for temptation. It gives us a false sense of rest. And a false sense of comfort, and it slowly lures the weaker brother into tragedy. Paul says that even though it's nothing for you to the weak, that connection remains, and they are defiled. It harms them. And so in verse 8, Paul says this, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay, so Paul shuts down a, a confusion that could have crept up before it even gets off the ground. And, and it's this confusion that a false piety is something that we're aiming at here. It, it's not going to get you anywhere either. Um, just like we, we saw with both marriage and singleness the last few weeks, should I or shouldn't I eat this is the wrong question to be asking. That's the wrong question. He's made it pretty clear. If your conscience is clear about it, I don't think God cares if you eat the pagan idol meat. Go have some leftovers. I might have some leftovers for lunch today. Light up the grill. But God does care significantly about your weaker brother. And newsflash, so should you. So should you. Awesome, great, you, you've, you've learned some things and I'm glad that your newfound enlightenment has effects on the freedoms that you get to enjoy. Go, go knock it out, have fun. But love for your brother, oh church, it should be far more important to you than getting to act on your enlightened opinion of something. It should be far more important to you than getting to, to 
flesh out the good things that you get to do. Oh, but wait a second. Like, this is a free country. Like, like someone else's needs shouldn't have any dictation on, on what freedoms I get to enjoy. Welcome again to the Upside Down Kingdom, guys. And it's clearly upside down, right? Does anybody doubt that? Because listen, it, it really doesn't matter whether you style yourself as a more conservative person or if you style yourself as a, as a more progressive type person. This is the air we all breathe. A- every one of us, myself included. In fact, it, like if you step back and, and pay attention, it, it doesn't matter what current cultural argument we're having. At some point along the line, one side or the other is going to throw out the you don't get to be the boss of me, I'm going to do what I'm going to do argument. It always comes out. Always. Pay attention long enough and you will see it. You don't get to be the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Thanks. Over and over again. It's not an argument that the bad guys use. It's an argument that you use. And I find myself using it too. We're all guilty of this posture way more often than we like to believe we are. Way more guilty of it. It's petty. It's shallow. And it is wholly unchristlike. How do I know that to be true? Because... This posture is the exact opposite of the posture that Jesus took towards us. The exact opposite. Philippians 2, if you know that book of the Bible, tells us that Jesus refused to cling to his rights and privileges, even though they were properly and rightly owed to him. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a, what? Servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Church family, the gospel is literally, it does not exist unless Jesus lovingly lays down his rights for the good of the weaker brother. We have no gospel unless Jesus takes that action first. The I don't care how it affects others, I'm going to get what's mine argument. It's ridiculous when it comes from people who don't know Jesus. It's shallow. It's petty. It proves that anything that they might claim as compassion isn't really compassion. It's ridiculous when it comes from people who don't know Jesus, but is wholly out of bounds for those who do. In fact, it's off limits because it's unadulterated hypocrisy. It proves that we either don't know what Jesus looks like or that we don't care at all about looking like him. God's people are deeply, deeply concerned with how their choices and how their actions affect others. We have to be. Why? Because we understand that there's an eternal reality beyond this moment that other people don't see. While others may fight for this moment, we know that there's a better moment after this moment. It is not a biblical worldview to fight for things, our wants and our desires at the expense of others. That's a Darwinian thing. That's a Darwinian thing. Christians refuse to buy into the lie that survival belongs to the fittest. That it belongs to those who can maintain and assert the most power and control. Verse 9, but take care that this riot of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You want to know the Christian posture in arguments? We, we love our brother and our sister in Christ more than we love ourselves. That's it. We love our brother or sister in Christ more than we love ourselves. And the proof of that is fleshed out in our actions. It's fleshed out in how we uh, speak to each other. Yeah, even when we disagree wildly on, a, on the solution to a problem. And most of all, it's fleshed out in rubber meets the road moments when we freely and joyfully lay down what we think belongs to us for the sake of someone else's good. But here's what's really amazing to me, because... We all kind of already instinctually know this to be true. Like we teach this kind of morality in kindergarten, right? Like 
we want our kids to be growing up in this kind of world. Even if all the supposed grown-ups in the room quickly devolve into that Darwinian type of thinking, we, we, we still have this remnant memory that there's a much better option available to us. And no, not everybody sees the world we do or operates in the world the way we do. I get that. But what does it tell us about who we've been created to be and how we've been created to walk that we all kind of long for that to be the way the world works? God's kingdom may feel upside down, but I think it's really further proof that his kingdom is the only one that's right side up. Paul's not done, though. He keeps going in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Verse 11, And so by your knowledge, this weaker person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Okay, so the practice in view here, uh, it turns out it goes beyond merely just eating some leftover meat. It, apparently, the Corinthians were also uh, gathering in these grand feasts that were being held in the pagan temples. And, and, and we'll learn a lot more about that in the weeks to come. We're going to be talking about this through about chapter 10. All right? um, and so Paul is going to spend more time fleshing out the this argument. He's going to address this topic in more detail later, but the gist here is, is this. Uh, big parties were, were being thrown in the temples, and it was kind of a mix of several things coming to a head. For some, it was, it was the extension of the acts of worship that were happening in the temple, and then there were these other people that were going to these parties. It was kind of the socialite affair. Uh, it, was just, it was just this the kind of feast and this uh, high society party that was happening. And then for others, honestly, it was even more innocuous than that. Uh, and so it was possible to rent out these spaces like a banquet hall, and so big family meals would happen in these places if your house wasn't big enough, right? And so, and so all of these things are kind of coming to a head. And so Paul is going to address the location later. And just to tip our cards, he's actually not a fan of that, right? He's going to rail against that idea when we finally get there. But right now, in chapter 8, he's still addressing the meal itself. He's still addressing the meal itself. So shelve the location for a moment, and let's just talk about the meal. And so he takes steps, a step beyond the weaker brother merely participating with you and eating the idol to them, to them merely watching you eat from a distance. So it's, it causes the weaker to stumble when you invite them into that meal, but now he's addressing them passing by the temple and looking inside place that they used to call home, a place they used to call comfortable, a place that they used to call whatever, and seeing you there. What do we do with that? Paul says, if, you, if your weaker brother sees you reclining at table in the pagan temple, it, it's, not, it's not merely going to cause confusion in them. He says that they will be encouraged to do the same thing and they're going to return to their sin. And in that encouragement, the weak person is actually destroyed. They are undone. And there are probably all kinds of questions that pop up into your mind about this and about that. But Paul ignores those questions for a moment. And he goes, hey, hey you realize Jesus died for them, right? Are we all on the same page about that? You realize Jesus died for them, right? And what, what's happening here? Your brother being destroyed? Can, can we all agree that that should never, ever happen? Can we, all, can we all say that that's what we're aiming at? To avoid that? And again, just like the last several weeks, there are questions and there are yeah buts that, that rise to the surface as soon as we get finished reading something like that. Like we try to flesh out all the, the limits of the, and the specific scenarios, right? Like, like does this only apply to, to eating pagan idol meat in, an, in a pagan, uh, pagan temple? Like, like is that the only thing in view here? Are we talking about a literal situation or are there principles in this that we ought to apply to other things? Can Christians do this? Could, should Christians participate in that, right? Like don't we all have those questions? I have a lot of those questions. 
have a ton of those questions. And just like the last several weeks, those questions aren't unimportant. Those aren't out-of-bounds questions. In fact, I think they're healthy questions to eventually ask. On top of that, man, I really trust that God is good enough to guide us in this if we approach him humbly and, and, and with a teachable spirit, right? Does, does anybody doubt that about, that about his goodness? Think he won't help us understand these things? The, the problem, though, is that those questions aren't the primary question. They're not the primary question. They're not the very first question that we need to ask when we come across texts like this. The very first question we should ask is, am I paying attention to what I'm doing and how what I'm doing affects my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I actually paying attention to that? And the very second question, the question right on its heels is, am I humble enough to lay down what I believe is right for me in order to protect those who are weak? Because listen, until you answer those first two questions faithfully, the other questions, they're not coming from the right place. They're not coming from the right place. Until you faithfully answer those first two questions, all of the clarifications and all of the yeah buts and all of the lining out the specific scenarios and circumstances are nothing more than a sinful heart's attempt to justify itself and carve out an excuse for protecting what it is you actually love. That's all it is. Those questions can come. But until we answer the, am I paying attention and am I humble enough to questions first, they're not coming from the right place. Paul says, regardless of whatever you think is owed to you, Christ died for this weaker brother. So maybe, just maybe, we should be concerned about them at a high level as well, right? And even though we've discussed all kinds of hot-button issues so far throughout this series, and there are going to be way more of those to come as we get into the back end of 1 Corinthians. I, I kind of genuinely think that this might be the hardest week for us to grab a hold of. I really kind of do. I'm convinced that this is the upside-down kingdom reality that is going to be the hardest for most people in our culture to latch on to. Why? Because even though it's quickly fading, um, our culture still has an idea, like at least a distant memory, that petty infighting among church leaders is kind of out of bounds. It doesn't look so great. Like we talked about that. Everybody's got a preference, but we all kind of think that, that that's just not a, a good thing to do. And we, all, we all still kind of think that trivial lawsuits among believers makes the gospel look bad, right? Like, does anybody really struggle with that? All right. um, and, and even though we think that, you know, even though we, we still think that sexual sin is a real thing, and, and, and even though we live in a culture that, that, that's celebrating that more and more, we, we all kind of get that, that, that there's a way of running headlong into that that's going to harm people, right? Like, like, like even our, as our culture fights back against that, we all kind of have this distant memory that, that there are some things that are out of bounds, right? And so, like, we all kind of have these things in us that go, yeah, yeah, that kind of makes sense, and yeah, yeah, that kind of makes sense, but this... Laying down your rights because someone else is in need. Guys, we lost that generations ago. We lost that generations ago. The I'm going to get what's mine mentality, it permeates every possible corner of our society, and I think including the American church. Paul may only be addressing, chewing on some leftover idol meat here, but the implications of what he's saying it is a shot across the bow of our current cultural identity. Make no mistake about it. God's kingdom is upside down from the kingdoms of this world. It was upside down to the kingdom that they were trying to build for themselves back in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And it is just as upside down to the kingdoms that we're trying to build for ourselves today. Just as upside down. Maybe even more so. In fact, I think we probably struggle with this more than the Corinthians did. But then there's that question we're trying to discipline ourselves with, right? Is it beautiful? Yeah, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all compared to what I've been brought up to believe is good and right and wonderful for me. But is it beautiful? 
Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? Yeah, it's disorienting at first. Yes, it's incredibly costly, but is it beautiful? And I, and I get it. Like, like That's really hard to see from the outside, right? That's really hard to see. But thanks be to God, man, our good king has never, and I mean ever, called us to do what he did not first do for us. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. What Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 8, it's, it's not some command that's been handed down by some elite ruling class that doesn't know what life is really like down on the ground. Doesn't know what how the real world actually works. It was modeled first and foremost. It was modeled perfectly by our good king. Because it was first modeled by Jesus, Paul can willingly and joyfully say this in verse 13. It says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul is more than willing to lay down things he is free to enjoy, maybe even forever, so that others can flourish. And what's really interesting about this one verse, and we don't have a ton of time to get into it, but food and meat in the Greek there, they're just the more generic versions of the words he used earlier. Earlier in the chapter, he uses words very specific to idol worship. All right? the, the, the word for meat there is meat that has been laid down at the foot of an idol. Here, it's just the generic word for meat. All right? And so we can guess this about what he's saying, and we can guess that about what he's saying. All right? uh, but this, <laughs> I think it's really incredibly reasonable to conclude that Paul is saying here that he'd even lovingly take the extra step of not eating meat at all if that's what would serve his brother. Like he actually says that. Now, do we have evidence that God actually called him to, to do that? No, we, we don't. He's, he's not laying down a command for himself or, or for others here, but the posture of self-sacrifice, a commitment to do whatever is asked of him because others need help, yeah, he's in. It's not a struggle for him, he's in. Whatever I need to do because my brother needs help, I'm okay. It's just me that's gone. I'd call that a pretty clear sign of maturity. The Corinthians, man, they, they believe themselves to be mature. and They can push forward that posture and that presentation of themselves all they want. But Paul here, man, he shows them exactly what real maturity looks like. It ain't, it ain't a higher knowledge. It's a sacrificial love. God, not, God might not be calling you to lay down some right at this moment. We're, we're not aiming at a false piety here, right? That doesn't get you anywhere. But are your eyes open enough to see when he is calling you to do that? And do you love your weaker brother enough to enthusiastically say yes to that call? Hey, what do you think happens when, when a church full of people all pick up and walk in this posture? that creates for a healthy place? I do. I kind of really want it here. I think I would do some big things here with that posture. So how do we respond to this, right? Like, like what do we do with texts like this? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the text, right? And this week, man, I think he shows us that he is infinitely more concerned with our Christ-like posture towards those who are weak than he is with the particulars of our imaginary list of do's and don'ts, right? Like, like don't mishear me. There, there are definitely things that God calls us to, and there are definitely things that God calls us to avoid. But then there's a whole lot of other stuff in the middle that he hasn't. And he's left it up to our conscience. And for some reason, we still seem to get all worked up about those things. But, but a sacrificial posture towards the weak, that one's never a conscience issue. That one's a clear command. That one's a clear command. And so maybe this morning is an opportunity for you to repent of sin. Take, take your focus off of yourself and to place it on those that you can serve. Maybe that's what God's calling you to this morning. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray 
We're going to sing. That's a, that's a time for you to put action to what God is stirring in your heart. Listen, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. I really am. You can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus laid down his own rights and privileges to come at our greatest moment of need, separated from God by our sin. Our greatest weakness. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that right now. You don't need me. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll, I'll be down front here if you want somebody to talk to. If you're watching us online, you can use the contact form linked in the video description. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Honestly, I think we need help with this one this week. At least I know my own heart does. can already create a long list of excuses for why I don't have to be obedient to this one. And I'm a really, really good excuse maker. Humble me before you. Humble me before your word. Give me eyes to see the needs of the weaker brother. Give me a heart that loves them more than I love myself. Rip away the things that I love more than them. And I don't know what all those things are. But you are God who is big enough to make those things known. And I don't want a Phariseeism. I don't want to, to call things bad that you haven't called bad. But I do want a heart that loves. I want a posture that serves like you sent your son to serve. And so where that disconnect exists, fix it in my heart. Father, for those who may not know you yet, would you make yourself known? Show them that in their greatest moment of need, in their greatest moment of weakness, you came and you lived and you died and you rose again. Father, thank you for sending your son. Not only to save, but to model service. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.